0: And Sixty seconds.
1: Best recorders, high speed. Five.
0: Open solo fuel four. Band. Open. Three. Two. One. Zero. I would like to welcome you to our next episode of the podcast series crossroad. My name is Stephanie Rudvik. I'm a linguistic anthropologist at the University of raditz The podcast is created in collaboration with the research program Global Conflicts and Local Interactions, which is funded by the Czech Academy of Science within the strategy AV21. For our discussions, we invite social scientists whose research deals with burning topics and problems of our globalizing world. Our guest today is currently one of the leading scholars in decolonial studies. Sabelo Nglovo Gaceni is professor and chair of epistemologies of the global south with a focus on Africa at the University of Bayreuth in Germany. Sabelo was trained as a historian, originally in Zimbabwe, before he held various prestigious research positions and directorships at universities in South Africa. He is the founder of the Africa Decolonial Research Network based at the University of South Africa. Sabelo has well over 100 publications to his name, primarily in the fields of African history, African politics, development, and decolonial theory. His latest sole-authored major work is Decolonization, Development, and Knowledge in Africa, Turning Over a New Leaf, with Routledge in 220. But I, as I understand, Sabelo also has two new manuscripts already in preparation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, Sabelo.
1: No, thank you. Thank you, Stefan.
0: So one of the major themes throughout your work is epistemic freedom. Decolonization and struggles for epistemic freedoms are struggles against epistemicides, which you have defined as the killing of existing endogenous knowledges. Sabelo, could you explain to our listeners, also non-academics, what we can understand epistemic freedoms to be?
1: Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, I think... uh... To get a clearer understanding of the concept of epistemic freedom, which I think is a very important concept, we need to understand the very basic issues. The first one being that all human beings are born into valid and legitimate knowledge systems. In other words, in order to survive all human beings, they have to have a knowledge, they have to know uh, uh, other things. They have to know what is dangerous and what is not dangerous. They have to know what is progressive and what is not progressive. And that is a gift of all civilizations. And uh, <clears throat> But the moment of the colonial encounter uh, uh, from the 15th century onwards, it actually changes that idea of all people having knowledge and knowledge systems as Europe expands into other parts of the world, it tended to claim to be the only uh, <clears throat> embodiment of knowledge, of valid and legitimate knowledge. And they tended to delegitimize other knowledges, and they not even to delegitimize, but to even say they don't have knowledges. So it is within that context that of uh, what I will call a cognitive empire, an empire which actually moves through conquests, uh, genocides, but also which actually moves through mental invasion of other species, uh, of other people, displacing, replacing the, the languages, the knowledges, the cultures. And it is within that context that then images the, the resistance by those who are deemed to have no history, no knowledge, no culture, no language, because they know that they have. So they become surprised when they are told that certainly they have nothing. Secondly, that they are no longer uh, complete human beings. They are actually incomplete human beings or subhuman beings uh, who in that uh, subjectivity of subhumanness, therefore they have no epistemic virtue. And it is within that context that struggles for epistemic freedom emerge. And uh, those struggles, uh, become struggles for <clears throat> articulation and the maintenance of existing knowledges which are under threat of colonial invasion. And it is within that context that the concept of epistemic freedom actually emerges because it emerges as a concept in which people articulate and maintain that they are knowers in the first instance Second, that they have a right to think as themselves and not to actually invite what is imposed from somewhere else. And it is within that context, perhaps, that uh, Steve Guantupigo, the leader of the Black Consciousness Movement in South Africa, posited this argument of, I write what I want. That desire to write what people want, that desire to think as themselves, is what I've called epistemic freedom the freedom to think to write to theorize as oneself and it is a concept which is related to the popular concept of uh, of academic freedom which is about speech rights but i'm combining the two in such a way that the rights and the justice come together so that epistemic freedom as a concept depends academic freedom in the sense that you will bring also this notion that uh, there are various ways of knowing. There is not only one way of knowing. So that recognition of uh, other ways of knowing is at the center of epistemic freedom.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Sabelo. And um, for your reference to Steve Biko as well, if I don't remember it incorrectly, um, he also said that the greatest weapon of the colonized was the mind of the colonized.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, indeed, because uh, he was not going to stand up and say, I write what I want, if he was not denied the right to write what he wanted. And that denial actually comes in the form of this attempt to control the minds of the colonized. And the control comes through the school system, the church system, the university system. So it's, it's exactly you can't see, it is invisible. The control is not something which you are told to don't think this way, is really to program the mind so that you think in mimic rather than as yourself. <clears throat>
0: Yes, yes. You also spoke in, in, a, I guess, in a more implicit way about power. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, um, another central analytical concept in your work is coloniality as a system of power, coloniality. Yeah. And this determines social, economic, political and cultural global relations after the demise of formal colonial empires. Yeah. So not colonization, but coloniality.
1: Yeah.
0: You also enter into dialogue with the decolonial school of um, thoughts in Latin America and demonstrate these overlaps between African and Latin American scholars. Mm. Can you also explain this concept of coloniality of power to us in more detail and, and perhaps refer precisely to the institutions or main domains that, are, that constitute this?
1: Yeah, in fact, the concept of coloniality of power, uh, <clears throat> as, as you might know, uh, comes from the Latin American school, of course, uh, particularly the work of uh, Anne balquiano uh, and, and others. Uh, it is a concept which I thought was very important not only for Latin America, but for the colonized world uh, as a whole. Not only the colonized world, maybe even the whole planetary world if i can use that and uh, to understand it deeper i think you can't think about it separate from other concepts so you'll need to think about it uh, together with uh, how how colonialism uh was predicated on uh, colonization of being human itself in the first instance and this taking the form of social classification and uh, racial hierarchization of human beings in accordance with invented uh, ontological densities if I if I can use that word whereby there are some with a, a higher ontological density there are others with an intermediate there are others with a lower one there are others with nothing and that that social pyramid which is invented by by the modern, by modernity, Euro, Euro North American modernity in particular, becomes very foundational in understanding other forms of subjection, because in the first instance you subject being human itself to a particular power, and you redefine it in racial terms, and then you gender it, uh, so that uh, you you subject them to particular power, and that. That is an important starting point, I think, to understand coloniality of power. Because if you start that way, then you will understand that this social pyramid which is invented needs to be governed. You need a, a system of governing it. Because people don't just accept this invented social pyramid that they, they are subhumans, they are not humans. They they always resist it. So you will need to then come up with a, a governing or management structure uh, of that that invented uh, social pyramid. And the management structure really takes us straight to the concept of coloniality of power, whereby you then subject <clears throat> all aspect of human life to a particular modern power. we each knowledge, you subject it, you hierarchize it. genders you subject it, you hierarchize them. Knowledge is, you subject it, you hierarchize them. Spiritualities, you subject to them, you hierarchize. Nature, you redefine it as natural resource and you hierarchize it. And that is the, 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 the core aspect of, 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 of coloniality of power, which Ramon Grosfogel then uh, say, it can't be described in a, in a single word, if, if we want to speak about it more profoundly we need to speak about it in terms of heterarchies of power and the heterarchies of power speaking uh, <clears throat> to how it is very entangled uh, in such a way that <clears throat> you cannot say is only a racial power you can also say is a, only a heteronormative power you 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 need to say it's a modern colonial heteronormative racial capitalist, it has all these aspects in it. It's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's what 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 others will call uh colonial matrix of power. It is these matrices which actually underpin it. And when we speak this way, we're not speaking about a past structure of power. We're speaking about what governs the world today, in which at the top echelons of it you will find the powerful nations like the United States of America with the Pentagon and the NATO uh, governing the world. And then the others are pushed into into various levels. And you will find also that even with the decolonization of the 20th century, which we're trying to really change the world system and the, uh, the global order produced by colonial model of the world, you will find that instead of winning against this system, what happened is that they end up invited into the same system. And the typical example being, whenever you are said to, be, to have gained political independence, you are invited into the United Nations. And in that invitation, you occupy the lowest echelons of the power structures there with no veto no power. So much so that you find those countries which gained political independence <clears throat> in the 1960s, 1970s, they are a quantity in the United Nations. They are not a quality. Because they have no vote, no veto power, so they are the they, they symbolically there, but the, the power is done by five um, uh, 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 substantive powers with the veto power, and I find that to be an interesting expression because it shows that this system, if we are resisting it, is either it disciplines physically, it kills, but there are times when it disciplines. And then invites into 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 its own into its own structures so that it gives itself a new lease of life. And I see the post-1945 decolonization. Of course, people were fighting, they were sacrificing and they, and they fighting for freedom, but the system was actually devising methods of how to make sure that the system doesn't change. It 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 remains the same, but it gives this illusion. Of of, of, of of a change system it issues a new global order and i want to argue that the system might be working horizontal like this but it always creates vertical a global orders at particular moments like you can see our shift from uh, the westphalian global order from 1648 to 1945 and 1945 with another global order, whereby they then realize that this issue of denying others national self-determination is no longer working. So they give everyone, and they, and they then create the United Nations post-1945 decolonial world order uh, in which there is no decolonization in the true sense of the word. And uh, hence the, 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 the importance of this concept of coloniality of power, to the extent that, You find people like Ramon Crossfocal writing that instead of gaining, moving from empire to post colonialism, from empire to post racial world, we actually move to global coloniality. In other words, it is now invisible. The physicality is removed, but the cognitive aspects are then heightened and accentuated.
0: Wow. Thank you, Sabela. I think you really explained it in a very tangible way, how how I guess coloniality really is a planetary uh, state, let's say and that also means that the entire planet the entire world is mm. of need of further decolonization mm. yeah as it is an unfinished an unfinished process mm. when i when i heard you speaking about racial hierarchies as well of course south africa comes to mind immediately mm. Mm. this was uh, institutionalized to probably the most atro- in the most atrocious mm. way mm. in the world and mm. um we both share a long residence in the country mm. so for me, um, there are places in South Africa where this coloniality of power is just all too tangible still mm-hmm. to this day, mm-hmm. even in a in a kind of physical way. I'm thinking now mm-hmm. that places like Stellenbosch, where mm-hmm. where does white men who hold power um, mm-hmm. continuously? Mm-hmm. I'm wondering mm-hmm. where are these places. How can we transfer an analysis of this coloniality also? Mm-hmm. To the European context, you're mm. currently located in uh, an institution that, in a way, is mm. uh, one could mm. argue is the current center of African studies in mm. Europe through the mm. Excellence mm. Cluster. Mm. And um, from from your own experience at the university and in residence now in mm. in in, Bay- in Bayreuth mm. how what is your experience of coloniality and how can the struggle for decolonization be fought specifically in this institution and maybe the broader broader mm. germany
1: yeah yeah in fact uh, i think uh, <clears throat> the issue of decolonization must not be taken to be an issue of the global south uh, i think we need to 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 recognize that it is really a a planetary uh, necessity uh, in the sense that the colonizer's model of the world, as described by James Blount in 1993, I don't think, of course, it privileged Europe uh, materially they were able to draw all these, these riches from India, from Latin America, from Africa. But what it did not succeed to do is to create a stable uh, <clears throat> relationalities. I think, I think there's, there's something important there. It, it did not, the, those people who were subjected when you subject somebody to a particular power, you will need to always be there to monitor that the person does not stand up and free himself or herself. So at the end of the day, you are also, in a way, colonizing yourself because you need to be always there on the watch out for that person not to, uh, perhaps, to use, uh, to use uh, <clears throat> Paul Ferrer's uh, argument about the colonizer colonized dialectic, that the, both of them. They are, they, are, they are subjected to the same power, although others in the benefiting side and the others in the, in the, in the disadvantaged side. But at the end of the day, colonialism affects both the colonizer and the colonized. So this fundamentally means, therefore, if you are doing decolonization, you can't do it without de-imperializing. And the de-imperializing is really an agenda of Europe. It needs really to de-imperialize. In such a way that it will actually be lacking behind in, in terms of uh, <clears throat> in terms of still thinking about twentieth century thought at a time when people are moving ahead across the world and they don't know they no longer want to be subjects of anybody. they want to be to be to be citizens of the world and I think that that is that is an important aspect because that's an aspect which speaks to a fundamental challenge which we are facing at a global scale, the challenge of migration, as you were speaking about me having moved from South Africa to here. uh, This issue of migration, the idea that mobility is a human trait, it is not something which you can contain. And uh, bearing in mind that the greatest mobility in human history was Europeans moving from Europe into other parts of the world and the papes now are realizing a second as Mbembe will put it, repopulation of the world with the people from the global south moving into the global north. But all this will cause tensions as long as we've resolved the question of relationality, which was created by colonialism, the hierarchical relationalities of a master and a slave, a master and a subject. That that relationality, we need to deal with it. And and I think... This is an opportunity in the 21st century for us to deploy decolonization in such a way that it really destructures the structures which were put in place by colonialism. That is at a planetary scale. Within institutions of higher learning, in which I'm also now located at University of Bayreuth, the interesting part why I came to Bayreuth is that Bayreuth became really very distinctive in having this chair in epistemologies of the global south with the emphasis on Africa. And I thought a university at the center of Europe uh, advertising a position like this and for the first time saying they are actually interested in an academic who trained in Africa. It it, it doesn't really happen that way. They will be taking academics who are Africans who are trained in Oxford, in Cambridge, in in Harvard, and all this. But this this advert was saying, we will prefer somebody who really started in Africa. And that, that to me, I said, here are the people who sat down and they thought a bit different from others. And perhaps they are actually genuine in this this, uh, drive for For decolonization and the hence i came i had I had a dialogue with them, and they hired me and But the interesting part is also the way the the knowledge is we are finding here that we are beginning to be bifurcated in between those who believe that there is a universally objective truthful uh <clears throat> And the and the the knowledge which has no locus of enunciation, and I always push this idea that I, I think it, it it is not true that we can think uh, outside our 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 identities. And uh, this is the debate which we are having here at Pyroid uh, for the few presentations which I've I've, I've 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 done here. The second one which I've also realized is that when you put concepts like slavery, enslavement, colonialism, racism, there is always sometimes this quick jump in of saying, but it is normal. The Roman Empire was doing that. Everyone was doing it. Go to India, they do it. You go to Africa, they were also doing it. So there is also the question of how to use concepts, not in a reckless transhistorical manner that they end up losing meaning. When was talking about the transatlantic uh, enslavement of black people, it is a particular concept for a particular moment. You can't just use it and uh, take it back to to Greek society. That No, but even in the Greek society, there was a wall. Other people were outside, others <laughs> were inside. And then the question is, why do you want to normalize this abnormal <laughs> abnormality that, that you know so i sometimes argue and they say yes let me agree with you that it is like that then what do we do let's live with it is okay <laughs> but i don't think that's 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 what the way we we, we want to, to 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 move forward i think the decolonization of the 21st century is really about the recalibration of the relationalities. The world will never be the same again. People are now all over the world. And they, by being all over the world, fundamentally it means we need to recalculate our iconography to reflect the planetary diversity of, 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 of the human population. We will need to rethink the knowledge system. Once you bring somebody like me within the academy, don't think the things will be the same. <laughs> there, is, there is no, there is no, there is, there is no way. If you bring more students from Africa into an African studies program, don't you think things will be the same. They come with their knowledges, they come with their own cosmologies, they come, with, and they will need to rethink all that. So that's 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 the challenge which I see in 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 the Europe needs to take it that way. And this issue of centers and peripheries, there is there is need to decenter so that if there are centers, they can be many. You can't have one center. I think that 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 creates a, a problem. Because if you do that, then you'll you you'll find that Europe created Southern Europe as a periphery, Eastern Europe as a periphery, Africa is a periphery and all these. And I think this time that is collapsing, the world is collapsing. Into one again, mm-hmm. and uh, if the world is collapsing into one again, we need to re reevaluate our values. We need to reevaluate our structures. We need to evaluate our knowledges. We need to evaluate almost everything. We need to re-world if I can put it this way, and uh, that is the decolonization, as I I see it at a planetary scale.
0: Mm, I like that reworld. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> The center, it also always uh, reminds me of wa Thiongo. Yeah. You also mentioned in great deal at the keynote address yeah. that had at the Viva Africa conference. Mm. He wrote his book, Moving the Center, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a as a linguistic anthropologist, for instance, I see the, the development of multilingualism in Europe. Yeah. The sense of having moved the center yeah. from Europe to Africa, because, of course, Africa is far ahead when it comes to the, the everyday normality of, of multilingualism. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, that's, that's, that's an interesting point. I, after we talked, I spoke to, I delivered a lecture at a, a keynote at the University of Botswana, and I was asked this question about language, uh, that uh, if you begin to use African languages within the university, how are you going to relate to the world? So my question, my answer was that, but we already know French, we already know English, we already know Spanish. Uh, in Africa, you won't find anybody who is not uh, bilingual, if not multilingual. And it doesn't mean that if we bring these other languages into the academy, then we will forget the languages which we already speak. We will actually just be epic. And these languages, which were bringing to the academy, were are not inventing them. They are already there in society. They are just in the margins. Hence they need to be brought into 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 the into the academy. So I find Gookie's idea that is not about to remove and to replace. Mm. If if you do that, you will do what is called revenge, sort of. Mm. And they and they you will, you will not have decolonized anything because you will have used the same logic which they used to remove and replace. The issue is to diversify Mm -hmm. uh, and pluralize. Uh, In other words, Nkoki's problem, which is also, I I, I share it fully, is this idea that you don't replace your own language with another language. You can add to that language. And I think Africa has this rich um, uh, uh, multilingualism. Together with the colonial languages, problematic as they might have been the way they were imposed, but they are now part of the languages of the people. And the, what is needed is these other languages are spoken by the majority, particularly the peasant and the working class. They will need also to be the languages which which, which, which we use in the, in the in the academy, bearing in mind that the greatest population of the students, they come from working class. And... When, when when they grew up knowing that they can communicate in their own languages. so there is now as I, as I was saying that uh, that uh, <clears throat> there is this uh, global human increased global human entanglement. it means languages are also moving into 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 Europe and Europe needs to open up for other languages. Mm. Uh, the monolingualism is actually a colonial uh, uh, model of the world. The world in its actuality is plural. It is plural in culture, it is plural in spiritualities. And that is what the colonial colonizers model of it was trying to destroy to create what 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 Achille Mbembe would call the paradigm of the one. One God, one language, one one political authority. Even in terms of political authorities, Africa had multiple political authorities. There was not one form of authority. So there is we're living at a time when we've seen the limits of the paradigm of the one. It's, 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 it's problematic everywhere. In Europe, in Africa, everywhere. It is problematic. And and if it is problematic, why not think, rethink things? Why not unthink some of the things as, as Emmanuel Wallerstein would say? Why should we continue to stick to knowledges which no longer take us anywhere?
0: Yes. Yes. Thanks, Abeloya. Yeah. I think the notion of diversifying is really a, a central one, and you've also you spoke already earlier on about race. So that's yeah. also one of my personal interests. And yeah. you, you, I'm sure you're familiar with the, let's say, the the school of thought that. Uh, doesn't want to see race at all, as a not even as a social construct or a sociopolitical construct that has existed, but a type of, um, I guess, colorblind philosophy, some people call it, or in South Africa, these arguments about non-racialism. Mm, so mm, well. mm, mm, and mm. so in, in the Czech Republic specifically, mm. um, one could argue that there has been, uh, especially among liberal, mm, people, mm, the idea that, um, of course, we're all equal, we're all the same, and therefore one doesn't see race. Mm, because if one sees race, mm, then you implicitly feed into a type of racism. Mm, so and this ironically I mean the really a nasty twist in this mm. is now um there's also some people who think of the black lives matter movement yeah. As a type of racist movement yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. how how this is warped, and how what are your thoughts on this um, what can be what can be done in order to bring in decolonization here and specifically in terms of the understanding of of race and racism i guess
1: I think uh, the first thing is to think about race not as prejudice uh, The prejudices are there in almost every civilization. Uh, Race as a structure of power. I think if you think about it as a structure of power, and you think about race as an institutionalized uh, phenomenon, you cannot say to deal with it is to take an easy way out, not to talk about it. (laughs) It 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 can't solve itself. Never... In the South African context, we've even experienced that even if you legislate against it, it doesn't die. Right. It yeah. needs to be dismantled. And when you dismantle it, you don't dismantle it by not talking about it. You dismantle it by destroying the institutions which sustain it. Mm-hmm. So so it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important point that we'll need to think about. How do we think about race? It's not about prejudice. It's, it's really an organizing principle of a world system and a world order. And there's an organizing principle. You cannot wish it away by not talking about it. It, The system continues. The order continues. So it's important that you, 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 you get a precise understanding of what race is. Because race also hides in markers. Markers of gender, markers of religion, markers of ethnicity. So it has a spiral effect or a ripple effect in the sense that it manifests itself in different areas, in different markers, which are not explicitly racial, but the logic remains the same. It's a racial logic. So what we need to deal with really is where it is institutionalized uh, in knowledge, in, in religions, in, 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 in power. It is institutionalized there. And if you keep quiet about it, you will never understand that the United States is where it is because of racial capitalism founded on the enslavement of a particular people. And you just say, let's keep quiet, let's not talk about it, it will disappear. I think that would be an easier way, that, that, <laughs> that would be a very naive way of dealing with it. Okay. That's one. Two, I think for somebody to say a movement like Uh, Roads Must Fall, Black Lives Matter movements are racist by raising a racial question. I think also it goes back to the naivety of saying, let's keep quiet about it, it will disappear. Let's let's use other languages. And uh, therefore, but we cannot just choose languages of struggle randomly. Uh, Languages, struggles are determined by the nature of oppression. In the first instance, if the oppression is racial in nature, the language will actually then a uh, 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 key on that on that issue. It is not that the people who are resisting a particular form of oppression, you tell them, don't speak about the way this oppression is organized. Use another language. The, the language which the Black Lives Matter movement are, 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 are using is determined by the nature of racial oppression. Without racial operation, there will be no Black Lives Matter movement in the first instance because all lives will have mattered long, long ago. But they are not mattering now because of racial organization of of, of the the social pyramid, the the political pyramid, the economic pyramid, the racial capitalist system. All this makes this idea of race not to be something which you can take easily by just saying, "Let's let's not speak about it. Let's use another language. It's, the exorcism cannot be easy like that. Like what happens in a in a, in a Pentecostal church, where you just say demon go away, <laughs> and then it, it disappears. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't go away. It pretends to have gone away. When 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 the decolonization of 20th century uh, materializes, we thought rec- racism could it had gone away. But we realize that you, that was that was a figmentation of our minds. It 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 remains as an organizing principle. It actually becomes invisible, and it needs to be called by its very name: racism. What else can we call it in order to dismantle it? We need to call it correctly by its very name: is racism. We need to call it when when when. Particular police of a particular racial origin, they kill people of a particular race. What do we call that? (laughs) There's no other language except to call it racism. All of us wish we could have another language. In South Africa, we always say, even our application forms, our formal forms, they say, state your race. And the people say, no, but we need to remove this. But we are trying to solve something uh, which is racial. And uh, in order to deal with the demographics, we need to know who has been classified as this, who has been classified as that. And uh, this is not our classification. <laughs> we are trying to dismantle this messy thing, which actually used the race as an organizing principle. And then, therefore, we can't actually avoid the concept. And then the third point is that race has been used for over 500 years. To subjugate other people. But yeah. there are people who are speaking about race in order to dismantle it. There are people who are speaking about race in order to reinforce it. And the uh, Black Lives Matter, as far as I'm concerned, they are speaking about race as a cry to dismantle it, not to reinforce it. So it's a different, it's a different politics altogether. It's like even going to to issues of, of 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 gender, and they say don't speak the word patriarchy. You are actually making it the world patriarchal, Keep quiet about it. But is there is a reality. Is there? You will need to depatriarchize. So so I find this issue of trying to run away from from uh, from uh, using the term. I think it's too early to do that without dismantling the institutions, the systems, and the structures of power which it put in place and and the, in, the, in order to do that movements like rose must fall uh, movements like uh, black lives matter they are leading us into searching where exactly is race hiding in iconography it is hiding in languages it is hiding in knowledges it is hiding in spiritualities it is hiding in conceptions of nature it is hiding so we will need to follow it there to dismantle it since it was it was it was constituting itself in all these spaces. that would be my argument
0: Yes, yes i mean suppose um I mean a problem cannot there's no solution for a problem unless one talks about it i guess thats confront uh, and, and
1: confront talking about it is not enough. it yes. needs to be confronted <laughs> yes it
0: yes, needs sir. to
1: be confronted racism is a it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a system of power which needs to be confronted. It's not a it's not a, a lip service thing which I, I just keep quiet therefore it. It won't exist. It doesn't work that way.
0: <laughs> right, right. I think this will very will be very enlightening. Also mm-hmm. for well, it's for me. It will be for our listeners. I think. Sabello, you have argued in your work that alternative knowledge and development paradigms must be based on a recentering. You spoke about that, but also a revitalization of non-Western knowledges and effectively also provincializing, therefore, Western knowledge production and challenging capitalist relations, as well as the hegemonic idea of a nation state as the only natural political unit. I want to ask you: Like, where do you see these type of recentering efforts, concretely, in the field of African studies and African political theory and international relations? Now, from your let's say, from your locus of enunciation, um, located in, in by, at Bayreuth University.
1: Yeah, in fact, um, let me start about my location here, <laughs> as a as a, pre- as a as a preface to. To this complex uh, issue which we are trying to deal with, uh, <clears throat> I think we need to think about three three useful concepts uh, when we speak about our locations, uh, because a location is a word which means so many things. Uh, one, it means geographical location. I moved physically from from uh, South Africa to, to to Germany, so geographically I moved. But there is epistemic location, which is where do you locate yourself, in the colonial side of the power spectrum, or in the subaltern side of the power spectrum. And then there is the social location, which is related also, eh, whereby The people who are working class, peasant class, and all that. But with colonialism as a seductive process, it confuses all these three. You will find people who are located on the continent now in Africa. Don't ever make a mistake that because they are located there, therefore they produce African knowledge. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. They they are coming from all these Westernized universities, even with the vernacular names. Uh, but at the end of this uh, the day, the knowledge systems which they then were they were socialized into were Westernized knowledges. So you will find somebody who have never moved from a native country where somebody was born. But when you listen to the person, he thinks about Africa from New York. He thinks about Africa from Prague. He thinks about Africa from (laughs) from London. And and that, that, that we need not to confuse. And there can be people who are based in Europe, but epistemically they are conscious about the issue of the politics of knowledge more than people who are based maybe in Latin America, in the Caribbean, in India, and all these other parts of the world. So it's important that we don't confuse these three. But colonialism's problem is that it always made sure that it entices people, confuses their, their consciousness to the extent that when you listen them to them speaking, you will doubt they are located where they are located. <laughs> They, they are looking at their own societies from outside. So as Ngoki will put it, that the major problem about colonial knowledge is that it transports the person epistemically into all over the world, while re, re, uh, keeping the body where the person is located. So then you have this bifurcation about the body mind. A, a dialectic, whereby you will find that people are located physically in South Africa, but they are speaking as though they are in Europe, and they have a, a, what, in quotation mark, a white epistemology, if if, if if there is anything like that. Yeah. So I think I think that, that 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 is an important aspect. Then the other aspect of of what you you asked. Uh, this issue of uh, decentering. I think at the end of the day, we need to do end up with no centers. <laughs> at the end of the day, we mm-hmm. need to end up with no centers. So decentering is really to destroy centers
0: mm-hmm.
1: because the idea of centers is a colonial idea. Uh, mm-hmm. Generally, we will, as as we use the word entanglements of people, entanglements of continents, entanglements of knowledges, entanglements of cultures, or interdependence, as some people will use it. Colonialism was refusing that interdependence. It was always hierarchizing in any sphere where it intervened, it was working with the hierarchy. You hierarchize is not about civilizations as 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 would say it was going to happen that civilizations were going to collide on each other and perhaps donate uh, whatever is good from each other and uh, enrich human experience. But colonialism, as, as, as he puts it, is not the methodology for doing that. Colonialism is to destroy this in order for this to live, destroy this in order for this to live, destroy this in order for this to live, destroy this in order for this to live. This this to live. It is not about... Relationality, mutual relationality. So, so they, they, they is that. And then there is a third element which I found the concept to be very important from uh, Francis Nyamjo: the question of incompleteness. Uh, how, how, how can we reworld from the vantage point of incompleteness, in which we all accept that we are incomplete, in one on the earth. Uh, if if we do that, I think we will begin to see the value of having you and other people uh, in order to try and uh, complete ourselves. Uh, and I think it has implications for relationality, it has implications for knowledge. It has implications for being human itself, that this is an, always an incomplete project. Uh, that's why we talk about decolonization as an incomplete project in itself, in the sense that uh, if there is this incompleteness, then the eco-politics of completeness will die. And uh, if this eco politics of completeness die, therefore Europe cannot claim to be the center of the world. That, that, that centrality will collapse because it needs maybe African knowledge to do other things. It needs Indian knowledge to do other things. And the Indians also need European knowledge to do other things. And Africans also, and perhaps it, 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 it takes us to to Bonaventura Tosuzu's argument about ecologies of knowledges. How do we end up with the knowledges from virus uh, provinces of the world, if you ever they are provinces, uh, and they make sure that they come into an academy and they enrich human experience without necessarily saying anything goes. They, they need to contest each other in that space and they reveal their, 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 their usability and their contribution to, to enrichment of human life. And I think that, that that is an important aspect. But if you go to Ngukwationg, Ngukwationg is not also talking about uh, decentering in terms of north, north south. Ngukwationg is also going into the minute detail of, say, in this world, you will also find that there is a patriarchal dominance. Even in the global South, even in the global North, the knowledge being produced more by men. Uh, and how do you descend in the patriarchy, in, 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 in knowledge, in power, in, in culture? Then secondly, he speaks about the whole issue of class, that the majority of the people in Africa are actually the peasants and the workers. And how do you use the the knowledge of the bourgeois, who are sometimes as as minute as 2% of the population, and you ignore the the knowledge of the bulk of the population. And he thinks this moving of the center, bourgeoisness is a center, patriarch is a center. So the center is not really geographical. So there's this decentering at many levels, and I think we need to expand that decentering so that it becomes a useful concept. It is not about geography per se.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sabelo. You you now alluded also the to the I suppose the hierarchy that capitalism has created. Um, yeah, yeah. So when we speak about the bourgeois and the poor, yeah, yeah. one question here specifically. Um, <laughs> Would like to still bite your brain on this. Mm -hmm. So, um, in one of your 218 uh, publications, I think it's the book on epistemic freedom, Mm -hmm. there you write that if one, if I I quote you directly, Mm -hmm. epistemic freedom is an essential prerequisite for other freedoms, political, Mm -hmm. economic, and cultural. So, I want to ask you how. Is it really possible for for the poor, the marginalised, and this on a global scale, but specifically also in Africa? Mm. How can the poor and marginalised develop epistemic freedom, or can we? How can we develop epistemic freedom for them if they are mm. so, if they are locked in? If they are locked in the periphery, if they are locked on the margins? Yeah. And, and and how how can their voices be heard? Mm,
1: mm, mm, mm. In fact, that's an important question because it still takes us back to this issue of sentence. <laughs> okay. uh, because um, why there are margins is because there is a sentence <laughs> in, in, in the first instance. Why there are people in the margins is because there are people who put themselves in the sentence, mm-hmm. and uh, there are systems. Which put a few at the center and they put others on the periphery. And one of them is what we've already named racial capitalism. It, 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 you know, racial capitalism, I, 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 I find it very interesting that it also creates its own ontologies the bourgeois ontology, comprato ontology, petty bourgeois ontology, as well as peasant workers you will not have that unless you have capitalism. Mm. So it's a, it's a, it's a it's an invention of capitalism. Ontology is invented by capitalism. And the, these ontologies, they are always defining the human in relation to the market. Yes. And the, the most worrying aspect is when we embrace them. I remember uh, being sent by the vice-chancellor to address a labor union and uh, and they were singing about being workers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Singing about being workers. And I started saying, but don't sing about that. You are singing about having, unless you are crying, if you are singing, which is happiness, and you are accepting that identity, I will have problems because you are workers because of a process, it's not a willed identity you 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 were dispossessed displaced and left with nothing except your labor to sell in the market and to to then naturalize routinize that identity i think we need to reject it as an identity as an identity in the first instance and they were all standing still oh that is how things are. <laughs> yes, that's how things are. You, you let's let's be careful about uh, ontologizing, reifying, and naturalizing, and accepting these ontologies, which actually make us things instead of human beings. We become things, the working class, and the, all this. And the, even Marx, I think, he tended to, to naturalize it. <laughs> so, so I think I think it is important that. We we first of all go into that the decolonization needs to go that deep into that into that aspect that uh, these ontologies which are created by capital themselves we need to denaturalize them they are not natural so I've been always trying to develop what I call the ten D's. Of decolonization, and one of them is denaturalize what has been naturalized by colonial model of the world and the capital. So it is an important, is an important aspect. And if you do that, the issue is you need not to build the the epistemic uh, 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 power of, of 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 the other people. It is there. Already, oh, it is there. It is only subjugated. If I can use, um, is it Michel Foucault's uh, idea? It is subjugated, but the knowledge is there. If you go to 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 outside the universities, outside the towns, into even within the towns, into the townships, people survive through other knowledges, uh, which are which are not the author, which are not these ones which are authorized within the universities they still go to, 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 to consult other doctors who are not the modern doctors. They still uh, approve here, propitiate other, other spiritualities which are not the, the Christian spiritualities. And they, that and they, 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 there is no pain in them doing that because that is what they are. <laughs> that is what they are. So the, the, the issue of destroying the centers is very important because such knowledge is, then you tap them without prejudice. Long ago, when I went to the university, I thought I was going to be educated, then come and teach peasants and the workers. Right. <laughs> now I realize that that was a, if you do that, you have fallen for a civilizing mission tradition, whereby you, 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 want, you, you are saying these are Paparians. The way they are living, they are Paparians. You will need to, to bring another knowledge, another way of knowing to, to save them. But the issue, at the moment, from a decolonial perspective, there is rich knowledge in those spaces which we need to tap. So we need to go there to learn. So there is, there, there, there is that. But as I started with the capitalist system, It therefore means that the epistemic changes will make you realize that being a worker is not a natural ontology for this case. So without that, without changing knowledge, you will think, no, we were workers, we were peasants, we were bourgeois, we were this, as though it came from a God, not from a system of power. So that's why I was saying you can't achieve economic justice, political justice, without epistemic justice. So you will need, first of all, to liberate in the knowledge domain. In the, nowadays is, is, is yeah. called the Republic of Letters. But I think also we need to dissenter that it's not about letters only. <laughs> there are so many others. If you liberate there, then you see other problems more clearly. And cook Thiongho defines decolonization in a best way. He said, to coldly and consciously think about ourselves in the universe and in relation to others. We need to, to think clearly about that. And once you think clearly, and you can't think clearly about it without another knowledge. This knowledge of co- coming from a, the cognitive empire is to play, is not too clear is to actually make things is to is to actually um, hide rather than reveal is to mask rather than unmask so the decolonial knowledge will really unmask and there is a good book by uh chinwenzu Chinweizu, with a good picture of somebody with the only one eye open <laughs> and that book is entitled decolonizing the mind that you are trying to open so that at the end of the day, you see with all your eyes, and then you understand the world differently. And once you understand it differently, your struggles also become purposeful, because you know where to attack, where to change. Mm-hmm. I've always been uh, in praise of Roots Must Fall and fees Must Fall movements. But at the end of the day, they have a particular consciousness which makes them see other problems. Which A lot of people were walking beside the Rosy statue, many, many years without seeing any problem any problem with it. But it needs another consciousness to see that this is an, an offensive statue. This is an insult. And it takes all these years up to 2016 for people to develop that consciousness to say the presence of Rosy statue here it's not just a stage in which you can just sit and eat lunch. There is, there is, you will need to to, to understand it epistemologically. What does it mean to have this at the center of a university? So it looks like the consciousness of people is, is heightened now. The antenna is heightened now. And the, we are reaching a stage where we have to contend with the difficult questions. And I think our generation is not a very lucky one because we're contending with the difficult questions like knowledge of knowledge itself is being questioned. Mm. Knowledge of knowledge itself is being questioned. And how do we know what we know? How do we, knowledge of things is being questioned. And thinking itself is subjected to a lot of pressure that we need to rethink thinking itself and even unthink it. And how do we do that? That is what the Decolonial Project has brought to the fore. Whether we will rise adequately to those challenges, I don't know. But it is here for us to do.
0: (laughs) Wow. On this note, uh, Sabelo, I think uh, I don't have much to add. Only to sum up and say that um, that I think that is a very, very valuable reminder of us every day to think about precisely this question: like how how do we know what we know, mm-hmm. and what does that say about our knowledge, mm-hmm. and how could we possibly have to if you think about this critically through mm. a more broader lens, where we really um, consider the developments of the past centuries uh, in, on this globe. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It actually takes us to this, this, this argument, which was put forward by Bonaventura de Sousa Santos, that the challenge for Europe is that Europe has been a teacher, it has positioned itself as a teacher of the world. Mm. And because of that, it disabled its ability to listen to other, other voices and other worlds. And the decolonial project is to try to solve that problem, that it must actually listen to other worlds. The, modern, the modernity, neuromodernity and, North, and North, North, North American-centric modernity, it has created more modern problems, as it's as, as will say, is Isgopo will say, without modern solutions. And that the solutions might not come from it, from inside. It might come from the, the borders. Hence, we always in decoloniality to think about botanosis. What about if you tap into other knowledges? Don't you think they might have solutions to some of these problems? But if you maintain a monologue of searching, searching solutions within the problem <laughs> itself, it creates a lot of problems. Uh, it creates a lot of problems. So I find that, that argument by Bonaventura de Santos saying, what we need to deal with is this inability to learn. So hence, it links with that, that, that broader uh, uh, <clears throat> concept from the, the indigenous people's movement learning to unlearn in order to really hmm. how do we make sure that we subject ourselves to that painstaking process so that we image as a better people
0: listen and learn yes <laughs> tabelo thank you so much um, we will all benefit from this podcast